David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Sean Johnson. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing Daniel Nairi's novel, Everything Sad is Untrue. We are discussing specifically the, well, the middle section, <laughs> roughly pages 115 through like 230 range. Um, I know people listening or not who list, have been listening to it on the audiobook. That's not very helpful for you. Um, you know, there's no chapter breaks, so it's hard to hard to break it up exactly. It's it's the poop section. Yeah, that's right. We're going to talk about the poop <laughs> section. So right now, I am in Denver, Colorado. Heidi is in Denver, Colorado for the Cersei Institute Conference. We're in our hotel rooms at separate hotels <laughs> across Denver <laughs> and then uh, downtown Denver. And then Sean is at home in Florida. I'm dealing with it. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. I haven't found my wife. The we Florida miss you, man. The Florida man, yeah, yeah. We miss you, Sean. Um, and uh, but but in, a, in about three we weeks' you, time, we shame you for not being here. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. Shame you because you love. That's right. In about three weeks' time, we have our close reads on the road event in Atlanta. It's and getting real. Sean's going to be there. We're all going to be there. It's clo- it's a dedicated close reads event. We're going to be talking more sh- about stories, and we're going to be talking about books in general, and we're going to be seeing a Shakespeare play and we're going to be eating dinner together and we're going to be uh, recording a live show in should I, should we tell the people what we're going to be recording our live show about? I think we should. Do, have we Absolutely. agreed on that enough? Okay. Yeah. I think we, because oh, yeah. there's still time to register. Right. Exactly. Yeah. We're hoping so, this right? will sway you to coming. We uh-huh. want you live, live with a, with a live in studio audience. We are going to be recording the podcast in which we decide what we're going to read in 2024. So if you want to see how that happens without all the stuff that gets cut out, you want to watch the sausage get made, uh, catch all the inside baseball information, then you should come to this event because that's just one small part of, of what this event is going to be. And I think that oh, yeah. hopefully means that it's going to be a pretty great event. There's still some space. You can just go to uh, the Substack page, closerweek.substack.com and follow the link that's pinned there on the, on the front of that page and you'll find the event right page to subscribe oh, to that. So we would love to see you there. It's going to be good. Yeah. Gonna set up a goldberry table. Can be fun. That's gonna be so fun. I can't wait. Um, I'm dying. You're dying. Too. Yeah. You gotta wait for it. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, we are gonna get right down to business because our time is a little bit limited because of this conference and because of how busy everything is. We had to get you an episode, but it might not be a full length, normal, wandery episode. I say that now, but it maybe it'll just be a shorter wandery episode. <laughs> um, so, no so it turns out we are here to talk about poop, as Sean said. You know, I hadn't thought about that before the um, before he mentioned that. I mean, I thought about how there's a lot of poop in this section, but I didn't think about mm-hmm. how this episode is probably going to itself talk about poop. And I've already used the word more times on this so many opening times. than I have ever used it in all the other episodes combined. It's like I'm hanging out with my seven-year-old. This is the poop um, episode. Yeah, that's right. Hashtag the poop episode. <laughs> okay, so he does bring up poop a lot. But to me, and I want to I know if you think that this is, if you agree with this, I believe is, is yeah. the way that the phrase should go. Yeah. He manages to talk about poop without it actually seeming juvenile in a negative sense. I mean, he's a kid. This is from the perspective of a kid. And it's about childhood stories and childhood drama and experiences and all those sorts of things so it is juvenile in that sense but it's not it, it's not there it's not like you're watching you know that scene in dumb and dumber that's just there because 
the whole point is to be gross, right? Yeah, it's not gratuitous. Yeah, okay. There, there's the word. There it is. Heidi, do you agree with that? I totally agree with that. And it is the most vivid description of poop. Like I have, when I read this book last year and ever since then, all I can think about whenever I encounter a bad smell is that smell is particulate. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yeah. And that's like, so that is burned into my soul. Thank you, you don't Daniel come back Nyeri. Nope. No, like you now I can never unknow that. And then he makes that funny comment about how if you just like try to close the back of your throat so that you're not smelling with your, so you're just breathing through your mouth. That's when you really need to know that smell is particulate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, oh, so he has all these jokes. He's got the jokes, right? right. He's got the... Um, He's got the, the weird experiences and the descriptions and all that. So then given that, given that he's got poop jokes and poop descriptions, how does he manage for it not to be just gratuitous or gross? Sean, wait, you want, you want to take a stab at this one first? Because Heidi's taking a pill. <laughs> I'm taking my she, supplements. I'm you put very... A, yeah, she put her supplement into her mouth. Right as I supplement. asked the question, I was like, well, I guess this it's a Sean. not answer. me. It's going to go to and Sean. this is going to be... This is going to be the first of many. Maybe I did that on and purpose so, so that I didn't have to answer the question. I'll buy you some Are you talking with a pill in your mouth now? Pills. <laughs> Go ahead. Go on, Sean. Supplement away, Heidi. Sean, um, the question is yours. I think that I think that what what makes it work is that uh, though though it's uh, lighthearted and I don't know uh, and a bit grotesque at moments that. He does, he hits on, see, I'm, now I'm going to be conscious of how many times I say it. He hits on poop as <laughs> something that is, you know, by nature, entirely unpretentious, uh, mm. but and common yeah, universal. to yeah. And universal. It's common to everyone. And uh, right, that has been one of the themes running through the book so far is the someone in his position uh, longing to convince everyone else that he's like them. Uh, and poop is one of the things that reveals all of the, uh, the hypocrisy of, of people pretending that, that they're not alike, uh, or looking down upon someone else because they're not as wealthy or they're, they have different practices or they, you know, their uh, mom lives with a stepdad and whatever. But poop is the great equalizer. <laughs> Every, everybody has to reckon with it. Uh, it, it reveals the, sort of the uh, shared ugliness that uh, everyone has. And uh, it is very, very humanizing. And so it's, a, it's such a fine line. Uh, anybody walking the line is going to wobble. Uh, but yeah. I think he does manage to... Uh, to talk a lot about it in this section without uh, ending up being juvenile in the process. I think that's how he does it. There's also so much pathos in that, in both the particular and the universality of it, right? Like that scene where he's oh, at yeah. his friend's house as a sleepover and he finally oh, gets to sleepover and they make sloppy joes. <laughs> Heidi and I, I was visiting Heidi for a couple of days before the conference and we were driving from where she lives in Colorado Springs to Denver for this conference. And while we're driving... We're listening to that scene, and I, I don't—I didn't say this to you, Heidi, but I, 
I'm driving your Tesla. You were nice enough to let me drive your Tesla because I get motion sickness. And here I am, we're eating raspberries and listening and in your Tesla, listening to the story about this boy who can't stop pooping. <laughs> and like and and how how he is so he is so embarrassed by it and he doesn't know how to poop like an American, you know, and he's like turning the heart, the bathroom faucet on because he's like <laughs> blaming the dog for peeing on the floor or the cat or whatever it was. And um sorry the siren outside the hotel here. Um and there's so much pathos in that in that embarrassment and in that sense of like he knows that everybody does this and yet right now he's like almost it's he almost feels like he's being watched. And I think there's the that the way he is able to capture that is something that we all kind of know a little bit. Like you're in a yeah. strange house and maybe you have to, maybe it's poop or not. That's not really the point, but we all kind of understand that sense of like alienation, even in a place where you you're desperate to be welcomed and to be a, yeah. to be a part of. And it doesn't really matter that everybody does it. That's true. It's universal to everybody. Every culture, you know, Napoleon had to poop too, but in the moment you don't feel like it's universal you feel like right. you are being watched like the truman show while in the bathroom by the people who you want to accept you because you're like desperate for their affection um so i think the way he captures that is really is really moving and, and something that you know we all can we all can understand whether we're you know a 65 year old reading it or a 10 year old reading it which is what great middle grade novels do hey what were you gonna say i i just agree with you about that, about that shared, it's like in giving us this particular moment of what was humiliation, alienation is the word you use. I like that word a lot. Um, like I was thinking about my, I was thinking about times I felt like that and like the vulnerability yeah. of that. And just that sense of like being trapped and know that you're going to get caught, but you're trying to hide something and not, not like a moral thing, just like a human thing, like going to the bathroom wrong. Right. Um, like I remember moving into my dorm room and being like, so people all just like go to like a public bathroom all the time. Like there's no, yeah, right. Oh, right? Me too. Like, yeah. I was, I was like, like, I, I don't like this bathroom. at all. Yeah. <laughs> I used to go to the <laughs> library to the, yeah, up, yeah. like, to the top floor to like the where nobody used to go because so i'm like i can't yeah. just like go to the bathroom in the dorm <laughs> the first time i went to my in-laws when my, when Daphne and i were dating i remember like waiting to use the bathroom until everybody went to bed yeah because it's like <laughs> nobody really cares but you <laughs> i know i was talking to a girlfriend just recently and she's saying that she she just she just got married, moved in with her husband. And it's like, now he's always there. Like, I can't, just what she said, she's like, I don't, I can't like poop in the house we share. He's like my boyfriend. Now we're married. Like, I just want, I don't want him to know. Right. Like, <laughs> But that, that is, and, and he uses it. One of the reasons it's not gratuitous is that something that's gratuitous is shocking just for the sake of being shocking. Um, but like, if it's, if, if something like the line that you're talking about, um, Sean, I liked what you said about that. Like if that fine line is between like prurience and purpose, right? Like he's using it purposefully um, in order to capture a universal human experience that frankly can't be expressed any other way. It's the perfect way to do it. And it's purposeful. He's offering it to us as this kind of like 
shared human experience that's also a completely isolating human experience and breaking down that barrier is purposeful and i i think that he um just chose exactly the right thing and obviously um poop is like a metaphor for waste too like that Mm -hmm. like what do we do with the things that have once been a part of us but no longer serve us or that we think are going to be gross to other people and they're not going to understand like he he very clearly is drawing parallels um between the metaphorical and the physical as well and it is the right metaphor for that it's just one that not everybody's willing to do i was (laughs) yeah i was trying to figure out what are other metaphors that he could have used in that are like universal to all people, no matter the cultures and no matter how old they are, because this is a book that has to reach multiple ages too. So like a lot of books are going to touch on, but what are some other metaphors people think of as universal? It's like, you love or hate maybe, but those are essentially abstractions, right? Like you don't want to necessarily, right. you know, how you, you can't create, I guess, you, right. I guess people use like sex, but that's not Nakedness, universal. Right. Nakedness, the idea, yeah. Like that would yeah. also work. Yeah. Like, you know, that horrible dream we always have about, well, I don't, people have, about being naked in front of people and exposed it's that same kind of sense of the everybody feels it and fears it but we can't ever really share it except in a story you know yeah 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 that's right so okay one thing i was thinking about though is there's this really profound contrast or paradox maybe in this section because it's also the section about his mother's faith Hmm. right that's and right. about how she was so committed to her faith that she was basically telling her husband, well, if we get killed, telling other people the truth will go to heaven. You know, it was like, and he, he was talking about how she was certain of it and no one was going to tell her otherwise. And she was willing to risk everything. And, um, and she gave up a great deal for that faith. And I couldn't help but think about how he puts those two things in the same Section. Now, I know that it's a little bit, we're dividing the book into thirds, right? But I think this middle third, we, we talk about this all the time, that middle part of a book is always so crucial. It's like the middle act of a movie or whatever. You're, you're beginning to, your ideas are beginning to coalesce. And the scene making is beginning to wrap itself around ideas, the ideas that matter most. And so he's creating scenes that involve the universality of poop and the particular, the particular commitment of his mother's faith. And... I was, I I basically, all I want to say here is that I was really struck by that and I found it really profound and I would like you to talk about it now. (laughs) Um, It takes so much deftness as a storyteller because you could easily get the faith part of that and pardon what I'm about to say, the faithfulness of his mother could get washed away by the poop scenes, but they don't like they, they, they both stand up against each other. Like, yeah, yeah, in profound ways as like distinct theme making that has great meaning to it. How do you think he manages to do that? I, I really, I like that question a lot because as I was reading and we were listening in the car, David, I was thinking what a juxtaposition there was with these poop stories that are profound, but also funny, right? Like there's, yeah, are, there's, yeah. there's this comic element to it. Right. Um, and almost like slapstick, right? And and then this thread of tension, like growing tension that we haven't even gotten to the punchline yet, right? Right, um, yeah, that's true. Of, of the story about his mother's faith. And he 
just juxtaposes them starkly with no transition points, right? You're not ready to hear about my mom's faith, but here's a poop story, right? Now that we're done with the poop story, here's how my mom converted, right? And there's that the transition, it's so clearly structured that way on purpose uh, that I was thinking about why. And, mm-hmm. and I think that the poop stories, I mean, I'm sure there's many reasons and Sean, you comment on your thoughts on this, but one of them, one thing that it does for me as a reader is that the, the poop stories make me feel the same way I feel when I watch an episode of the office, right. When I'm like oh, wow. embarrassed for the characters yeah. and I am like trying to push it away a little bit, like, you know, yeah. And the awkwardness. Yeah. And I can barely even read the story about his sister's finger. Like I, I really, I could like both, both times I've read this book, I've just been like, I cannot even like, I really, my eyes are like skimming over it because it's so painful to read. Um, and uh, so is it painful to read about a child being locked in a bathroom, trying to figure out how to wipe after eating sloppy joes and being mocked for his food? Like these are sad. These are intense. Like, Mm-hmm. human experiences um yeah they're sad so sad and so funny at the same time yeah so right. one of the things that it does to have them juxtaposed is it it creates an emotional um vacuum and like squeamishness and um reaction to the story that then is intensified um with that juxtaposition when we're reading about her conversion i'm already like primed to feel the jarring nature of it um Mm. and i think that's one thing it does what else does it do sean what else i think i think it does so many things i Mm. I, i've been thinking a lot about the juxtaposition too and i really enjoyed it i think you know we talked last episode about the way in which this book is like a a rug or a tapestry and so there are all these overlaps Mm. in the the warp and the woof and Yeah. uh, Yeah, yeah yeah and different elements interact with each other in different ways at different points and I think that in part, uh, it gives us this, it helps continue the the frame of of the the twelve year old narrator, right? Who's more comfortable talking about poop, even an embarrassing story. If it's a self-deprecating story, uh, it's easier to tell than something that is so sacred and sensitive like the faith of his mother, uh, which, you know, in the in the the framing scene, he might be less eager to share with uh, a peer or a stranger. Uh, And so he dances around it. But then it also does what Scheherazade always does, ending her story at sunrise. uh, So that we're, we're like, like you said, Heidi, we're primed, we're we're desperate to hear the rest of the story because he just pieces it out and then uh, rapidly shifts away from it. But that's really clever because all it does is is make us more eager uh, to hear it when it comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but he also the he's done such a good job at connecting uh, bathroom behaviors with the feeling of being other, uh, right? Mm-hmm. With the the extended talk about the cultural differences in the way the bathrooms are designed and laid out and the way that people go to the bathroom uh, so that and clean themselves or don't clean themselves. Yeah, that's right. And so it's all tied up in uh, that question. What, what could be worth 
giving all of that up and coming to this other place and this other life. Mm. Uh, yeah. So it's the, the even though it's poop, it's right on the on the cusp of that question. Yeah. And uh, and that question and so, ends up being tied to the notion of cleanliness. Like when you, yeah, they, that's right. when you look at someone as other, you often kind of what you look at is like that their ways are foreign. There's like an uncleanness that's kind of implicit between in the surface when you don't yeah. see someone as like you, you know? Yeah, that's right. Well, and the idea of persecution along with that, right? Like mm. his mother was persecuted in a way like um, like a red martyrdom type of persecution that um christian mystics distinguish between forms of martyrdom right a red martyrdom yeah. is a blood a blood martyrdom like truly suffering and shedding your blood for your faith and then there's a white martyrdom which at the time was considered monasticism but now we might say a white martyrdom is kind of a long endurance of sustained um deprivation or loss uh, the cost like a, you don't shed your blood but you're still paying um an extended high price a martyr's mm. kind of high price for the sake of the faith and he's in a way he is enduring a white martyrdom and she mm. is enduring a red martyrdom and side by mm. side that's being played out in the story although he never draws attention to himself as a hero he's very very self-deprecating and i don't yeah, think he true. sees himself as a hero like there is a humility but i when I read this, I'm so overcome by um, by the cost, by Seema's cost, not only for her own life, that's almost easier, right? But her children, yeah. like they are, they are living this American refugee hell experience, right? <laughs> and um, And that's like, that is the cost of their family's faith. And he's kind of so, slow rolling that, I think, in this section. Yeah. One of, the, one of the things I've been thinking about is who loves this book mm. and like who really, really loves this book. Uh, I was talking to Graham, our friend Graham Pittman, his son Rowan, who is probably 11. Yeah, Rowan's 11. Yeah. Same age as Coulter. He has listened to it three times, I think. Maybe two, three times. And he loves it. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. then uh, Bethany, my wife, has been, she just finished it. She's been reading it and she loved it. My mom loves it. How do you love it? So many of our friends who listen to it, love it. And, and at first, you know, a large portion of our audience, 75% of whatever, whatever, of our, of our audience was probably women and moms. Right. And when I first was thinking about it, I was wondering, is this a book that to me was never like a question of, is this book going to hold up to conversation? Because I think that's not even a question to me. It was more like, are people going to enjoy it? Is it going to be like a little too boy, you know, adolescent boy humor-ish? <laughs> But what turns out is that the people, yes, the adolescent boys mm. love it, but moms really love this book. And oh, yeah. like the ones who I get the most strong comments from are moms, like how much they love it, how they've read it multiple times, how they've read it and listened to it, how meaningful it is to them. And Howdy, I was wondering if you could answer why you think that is. Is it what you're saying about his mother and her cost and kind of putting yourself in that place is, or what do you, what do you think it? could be that leads so many moms to love this book so much. And Sean, if you feel like she's wrong, by all means, you can jump in Please, and speak to, to women in general. I, I honestly, um, yeah, I'm ready to do that. So watch yourself, Heidi. Uh, I've, I've been thinking, <laughs> thinking about this question moms a lot. This book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to speak out of my own suffering. And so <laughs> you're not going to be able to, yeah. to uh, strap me down. <laughs> um, brilliant. Um, 
That is such a good question, David. I think that it is partly that, right? The like imagining, I, I just imagine being this woman who he speaks about with such love and tenderness mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. respect and honor. Her. Yes. Yeah. Um, and um, so I, I love, I think, I think that, and there is, <laughs> I am a very typical mom. Like I, I feel this like opening up within me of wanting to mother him or people like him. Right. Like, um, and it, I think also because I don't know if this is a mom thing or just a human thing. Um, but it also, for me, there's this particular experience that's so compelling of this person's life, but then there's this universality to it. This, that, that is just kind of the, what it means to be human contemplation and to see that through, uh, the eyes of a thoughtful child like character like the narrator is he is Daniel Nyeri but he's Daniel Nyeri's former self right like he, it is it is his a projection of his of his own story of his past self and so I think that anytime and like women tend to really like this is probably true for men too but we like memory novels I think that's fair to say a lot of the time because we get to see the world through the eyes of somebody that we wish that we could come in and save, you know? Um, And, and that creates this experience of pathos for me um, that I like love this boy. Like, I wish I could know him and he doesn't need a mom. He's got an amazing mom, but I still wish I could just know him and feel like maybe I do. So Sean, anything to add to that? Uh, I think that's, I think that's right. And that was one of the things that, that I was thinking too, um, that, yeah, it's easy to, to feel for, I mean, the, the, the narrator and the main character is a, is a boy who's suffering. And as it's certainly easy for a mother to, to love and feel affection for a character like that in a, in a book like this. Uh, I think too that mothers often they want to they want to and sometimes struggle to know how to understand mm. their sons. Yes, uh, and uh, there's something appealing then too about uh, a son who's able to in a roundabout way, <laughs> put his feelings into words and articulate them. Uh, I could see that being uh, really desire or you know, um, appealing to mothers also. And uh, well, so uh, my disclaimer, my I've never had to live the immigrant uh, life and I've my mother's never run from a fatwa or anything. But uh, but this in the middle third of this novel, uh, I encountered a lot of similarities to my own childhood. Uh, mm. Single mom, single mom. Uh, I was an only child, and I was often either either on scholarship or, uh, you know, my mom was working extra jobs, and my grandparents were helping pay so that I could go to this private school where everyone was always richer than me. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and so I often had these kinds of lonely, isolating experiences too. Like, man, I, 
my friend invited me over to his nice house or, you know, whatever, to his uh, laser tag birthday. And there's no way that I can reciprocate. Uh, yeah. So those those kinds of, you know, how do you imagine know, this exact, this exact conversation? <laughs> and, uh, Always owe your friends and never keep track. Yeah, right. that's yeah. not something a child can. <laughs> child, yeah. Children think very transactionally. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Uh, and, well, and you and want even, to you know, be able. Like, you be, want to be able to give the things that your friend give to you to your friend. Yeah, your that's kid. right. Like that's not that's wrong. right. It feels it feels uh, it feels natural and human to be able to you know be magnanimous and, and to right. give and bless and in that way. Yeah. Um, and I also knew you know lots of nights where my mom would come home really late from work and I would be cooking food at home by myself. And man, uh, when when I, I was I also learned about- to to shake the pan. <laughs> <laughs> when I was listening to the part about him talking about the meal that he made. Which you were, and she would leave him like the bean, the sprouts, and then the eat cook on the yeah. I I thought of you at making mashed potatoes. I was like, uh, a, yeah, were yeah. you a ten year old or something? Yeah, that's right. Like uh, teaching yourself to cook. In, Tell us the story those, really quick, and then keep yeah about the mashed potatoes. Uh, uh, the mashed potatoes. So I mean, it was the same sort of thing. You know, I was home alone a lot, and um, my mother, my mother, God bless her, did not come from this rich culinary tra- tradition. Uh, and so often <laughs> she she would not leave me a box of bean sprouts. She would leave me in you know, a freezer full of whatever hot pockets and, and stuff. And, uh, but at some point I just got tired of eating that. And uh, so I, uh, you know, without really asking permission, I realized later after my mom was my mom came home and was a little bit panicked that I had been using the stove and so I realized that maybe I should have asked. But, uh, you know, I just looked up a recipe for mashed potatoes and. Uh, went to town because one day I wanted mashed potatoes and and the feeling of cooking that food uh, and eating that food that I had made on my own was uh, was such a feeling that I have never really stopped chasing that feeling. Mm. Uh, but but um, in all of this, right? His mom is like so many moms. I mean, there there are plenty of thank God there are plenty of functional, happy, intact families. Uh, but the, the story of a mom like this in America is almost a universal story too, because it's so so common that this kind of life is being lived, even if it's not uh, immigrants or abuse or whatever. Like there's some some version of this story is being played out all over the place, and uh, I think that that was also another reason that 75% of our audience might enjoy this book so much, uh, because it's a story about a heroic mom, and that's. And in a, in an unselfish way, I think it's easy to love that kind of story because it's encouraging uh, to see mo- heroic moms you know, who are making it, and uh, and even moms who are who are happily married and have supportive husbands and you know are and intact families also feel sometimes like they're living this existence. So it's not easy. Uh, so yeah, being, you know, a mom is a, being a mom is a difficult job in any circumstance. That's right. There's something so, um, I don't know what the word is. Like their relationship is really profound as well. I guess it's just the word that I'm thinking of, the relationship between them. Because as you said, Heidi, he does kind of revere her, it seems like. And she has this, it's kind of like, there's this classic thing going on with her where she's kind of stern, but also loves him so much. She's doing everything. She, like this story where she comes home from work and all those jobs and she's exhausted and she doesn't even stop to do anything except go straight to the kitchen and make a feast. And she does that because she has this great affection 
her children. She wants to give them things that that are beautiful, that matter, and like pass on these things that she would give in this tradition, this culture, even though they don't live there anymore. And so their relationship is very sweet, I guess, is just mm-hmm. profound. Yeah. You know, right. one of the better one of the better mother son relationships in the book that I've read in a long time. That's true. That's true. And it's it's too common for kids to sell their parents down the river in novels they write about their families, right? <laughs> right. These are the yeah. ways my yeah. parents failed me, right? And yeah, like yeah. Well, and, this and book, that would be oh yeah, this would this would be such an easy story to do that with too, right? And he's he's already made it really clear and enumerated all of the things that she gave up on their behalf. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it to your point, Sean, that you just made, like that he could have he could hate her for it. Right. Like, yeah. And instead yeah. he loves her and respects her and is giving us this story of, of her. Um, and the way, <clears throat> even the way he speaks about his father, like it, mm-hmm. it like drips with like love and grief, like mm-hmm. it's complicated, but it's so he it's, there's so much love in yeah. and his sister it's you they have this complicated relationship that's portrayed in them in in the story and yet it is mm-hmm. so full of love and reverence mm-hmm. and it's it, it's remarkable the honor with which he holds yeah. in which he holds his family that that is riddled with this kind of tragedy and loss Re- reverence is such an interesting word for this book like such a perfect mm-hmm. word i think because his story could be it would be easy for him to hate people mm-hmm. Um, but it's so Brandon it Goff. seems like everywhere he looks, yeah, everywhere Brandon he looks, he's re- he's revering people. Right. No, he reveres right. he, he he reveres the culture he wants to be a part of. This new of this new world that where involved the Dallas Cowboys and the Miami Dolphins and like kids who are beating him up and <laughs> the food that's in America and video games. Like he reveres all that. He also reveres the culture that he's coming from and the things that he misses so much about it and that his mom tries to preserve. And in a way he kind of does reserve these kids who are mean to him. He re- reveres them too. And he reveres the the rich people. And, you know, I, and yet, and, and all of those circumstances, it would be easy for him to be full of hate. And yeah. maybe that's one of the reasons why the book is so resonant for so many people is because in the face of situations where the easy choice is to resent, instead he reveres. And hmm. it's that reverence that drives his story, his his desire to be a part of something, but also not to lose what he left to be a part of a new country, but also to recognize like what his family comes from, um, to be willing to say my dad was a jerk, but also this is where he was not a jerk. Mm-hmm. This is what, this is where his good, what the good in him was, um, to see the good in bad situations. Um, except maybe in uh, dry toilet paper. I don't think that he reveres that. No, I think not. Like, the, one, the, might be the, the one thing he doesn't revere. Um, so I think I think that word that you used there, Heidi, is really apt for his posture as a character, like as a narrator, but also as a writer. Like it seems like, yeah, as a writer, the narrative driving force is like reverence. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you talk to them, he's a guy who like reveres so many things too. Like he's got this great joy about life, and I think when he looks around, that joy is tied to reverence. You know, he sees mm-hmm. like great chocolate brings joy, and he reveres that it can bring joy. Things that I think that he is a person who sees what brings joy and happiness and reveres it for its ability to do that. Mm. Um, I think that's I think that's really meaningful. I haven't thought about that until you started until you started using that word, and it mm-hmm. kind of makes me 
think about this book differently and like why it's why I want my kids to read it. Right. I want my yeah. kids to, to revere things that are worth revering, right? Right. And uh, even, even in when a things complicated even in difficult world. times. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Because yeah. yeah. he's not sugarcoating anything. Like he's right. he's even openly grieving what he's lost. Like when I when we lived in Iran, I had a house with birds in it. Like I was rich. We had like we were the the best of the best, the cream of the crop socially. We had, you know, my dad was doing great selling drugs. <laughs> <laughs> and being the best dentist. Right. Yeah. Um, that like he is he doesn't just weave it into the story, he tells us, like, I miss this. I want this light. I, this is that was better than it is here. And yet, yeah. and yet, like it's my mom did the better thing. Like, that's beautiful. Yeah, it is. Hey, listen, we have uh, next week and then we've got the Q&A episode, uh, but we're also running out of time for this episode because we've all got, you know, our things to get to. Um, so let's turn to some final thoughts mm. and you can make these extended final thoughts here if you, if you want to just kind of point to something that you loved in this section. Um, so is there, a, is there a line? Is there a scene? Is there a, an episode or a... Or a bit of characterization or something that you loved from this section. Um, or you can always just do the old, this is what I'm looking for as we get to the, the rest of the book approach. How do you want to go first? Sure. Um, I noticed as I was reading that in this section, we had fewer um, external stories, right? That this section was very personal. Like it is yeah. his... Um, <clears throat> Like all the things we we talked about, there was more, more of that like slapstick humor that has a serious mm -hmm. undercurrent, like the chickpea in the nose and oh, um, yeah. Yeah. that was gross and hilarious. Yeah. And um, um, but it, it lacked for the most part, um, kind of the interweaving with the Persian stories from the past, the mythology, oh, yeah. whatever, like Folk he's, tales and all that, yeah, yeah, like, so he's world building here um in it in a very interior an interior kind of way um mm. and uh and so the stories were a lot more personal and concrete things that had actually happened um and then his reflections on them and that that stood out to me and i think that that was a good narrative choice um because he's describing kind of the not kind of, he's describing the defining uh, moments of his life. Like the things that have, that are going to, you know, in a story, like the climax, when something happens, that's irrevocable, that, that changes the course of a life and a mm -hmm. course of the story. And, and that's what he's getting at here. And so kind of those, those more mythological sections, um, we're out of that. The other thing that I loved so much, I just loved is his imaginary, um, the imaginary story that he built in his head about Ellie, his grandmother's lover, the man, like the bookseller yeah. in the stone yeah. castle. Like th that yeah. was so brilliant. I just loved that because to go back to that word reverence, David, like he's, he's trying his best to like cast grace over this moment yeah. of calamity in his family and trying to understand it from Ellie's perspective. Like what if it was a romantic tale that still led to all this grief, but what if I could see it through the eyes of a child telling himself a story that is, um, 
bigger than life Mm -hmm. and yet also casts reality in its best possible light. Like this poor woman was suffering and had lived Mm -hmm. under so much traumatic grief and violence that she was looking Mm -hmm. for any way out. And even in that he could have resented her and hated her for it. And instead he gives her a, a, a lover with melting eyes and lives in a stone bookstop bookshop. That's just, that's grace. That's grace. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. Sean, you got anything to add before we go? Uh, one line that struck me and has put a point on, on a theme that's been ongoing as when he says in Oklahoma, rich people have nice things in Iran. They have nice spaces, yep. courtyards and fountain streams versus sports cars and mounted screens. Yeah. Uh, that was a great line. And, and it, it helped me think more about something that, that has been, uh, that I've noticed throughout the book or that I've wondered in myself throughout the book. Uh, and that's, the relative merit or value of the tradition that he's coming from or the the things that he is uh, missing and grieving versus the things that he's come to embrace in, in his new life. And, uh, and that was really poignant because it's not just, you could, you could chalk up bathroom practices to just a a cultural difference. Uh, There are people go, pooping a thousand ways all over the world uh and yeah, you yeah. know it's tomato tomato but uh there really is a suggestion there that uh something tr- uh, more good <laughs> uh gooder is <laughs> better doesn't quite work but i want to you know the, the the goodness of the word good has to be there somehow but uh but yeah that's something more good is behind him and uh and yeah and what that means for the rest of this story that it's not uh, there's there's no way in terrestrial or uh you know earthly terms to rationalize at the end that well we've we've ended up with a with a better thing uh, because there are no there are no houses with birds in the walls and there's no, you know, Oklahoma doesn't smell like Jasmine. And, uh, even the people who have the most there don't, uh, tar off, right. They, uh, so Mm -hmm. something, something is lost. And, uh, if he's going to convince us that the story has a happy ending, it's going to require more than, uh, just, rationalizing the grass is greener kind of problem mm-hmm. yeah i was thinking that that line was part of why i think this is a great book for you know kids that are like in those middle school years to read uh because it, one of the things that the book is asking us is like what does it mean to be rich mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what does it mean to to have a lot and that there's different ways that can show up. He doesn't, he doesn't ever say your own, you know, it's not one of those books where he only says he spiritualizes it, right? right? He's like, if you have a lot of financial wealth, that's, he doesn't like say that that's 
worse or better. Like he desires all those things and there's great things yeah. that come of that. And, but what he does, but he also kind of like makes fun of people who have a lot of stuff and don't either use it virtuously or don't, uh, you know, they, they still just eat hot pockets, you know, no, you know, <laughs> right, yeah. it's going back yeah, to your story earlier, right? Pink chicken um, goo pressed into nuggets. Yeah. And he, but he's also the kind of guy who would like hot pockets, right? But he also, <laughs> like, if you, if you have a lot, but you only spend it on hot pockets, that's not living richly either, right? <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that it, it asks us to contemplate what does it mean to be rich? What does it mean to have a lot? Are there degrees of that? Um, is there, can you be rich if you don't have a lot of financial wealth? You know, all those kind of things I think are questions that we as adults would answer in a particular way. But as kids, there are things that are worth contemplating, right? And whether you have money or not, kids should be able to think about things like that. So um, I think it's it's asking kids to think about things that are quite complex, but also wrapped up in poop jokes. That's right. So bring it full circle. How do you anything else before we go? (laughs) Nope, that's it. I just like, I really want the final line of the show to be wrapped up in poop jokes, period. (laughs) Happy reading. <laughs> All right. Well, let me see if I can pull that off. So for right. Heidi White, so for next week, I'll just remind people, for next week, we are going to finish the book and we're going to discuss that. And then um, we'll do the Q&A after that. And then um, don't forget that in August, August 4th and 5th, we have this event in, in Atlanta. We'd love to see you there. It's going to be a great time. There's still some space and you can um, go to the, the Substack page, just closereads.substack.com. Click on that link that's pinned there and that'll take you to the registration page. Um, also, don't forget, we're also doing that hideous strength over on the bonus show. So if you want to subscribe to Close Reads HQ, we've got that coming. We've got lots of great content. Next week, we're recording some, some, uh, we're recording an episode on a movie. We're going to be doing a short story and we're going to be having a live poetry discussion too. So all those things are coming every month if you're signed up to Close Reads HQ. And you can learn more about that in the article that I wrote kind of explaining that also over at closereads.com. Okay. Anything else? Any business stuff? Any, you know, anything else we need to add, Sean Heidi? Sign up for the retreat. Yeah, it's good to be great. Yeah. Okay, so for Heidi White, for Sean Johnson, I'm David Kern. Wrapping, how did you want me to say it? Wrapped up in poop jokes? Yeah, you got this. For Heidi White, for Sean Johnson, I'm David Kern. We've had a great time discussing a book that ultimately wraps up all its virtues and poop jokes. Till next time, happy reading. Happy reading.